Hi, welcome to Lakeland Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Jesse Keller, and I'm joined again by Matt Heisel. And this is our second episode on the General Approach or GAS series, and we're going to tackle difficulty breathing. Thanks for being on the program, Matt. Well, I appreciate the chance to join these GAS series of inflicted knowledge. And when we started talking about this topic, we got into the weeds really quick and we realized we can't cover it all. We're going to look at the first 10 minutes of what you're going to do here. We're going to paint the picture a little bit. Imagine you're an intern doing your very first overnight shift, first night in June. You've gotten most of the way through your shift. And it's 6 a.m., and you think, I've got an hour to go. I've got this made. Guess what? The hern goes off. The EMS radio is telling you they've got the 6 a.m. diff breather two minutes out. They'll be there shortly. What do you do? <laughs> Panic. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's number one. And the point to this talk is to give you a broad strokes framework to kind of look at how do I look at this gasping dyspneic patient who you have to start resuscitating as you take the history how do, I, how do I begin? And so that's what we're going to look at. I like it. The first question is, do they need their airway managed right now? That intubation is a whole separate podcast. We'll do that a week from now, maybe longer. The question of can they manage their airway? And increasingly, these patients are managed with BiPAP. That when I was in you guys' shoes as med students, um, most of these patients got intubated. But now with, with BiPAP, that can bridge you through uh, patients that otherwise would have to have been intubated. Now, it's worth talking about who can you do BiPAP on. Yeah, and, and, and that has been changed even since I was in residency. And really, if the patient's awake and breathing, it's, it's something I try more often than not. That's exactly right. They have to be breathing. So if they're apneic, if they're agonal, well, guess what? That patient just bought plastic, and you get to do your very first intubation. Great. Congratulations. Hope it goes well for you. So run me through what you look at when you walk into that room that, that with the patient in obvious distress having difficulty breathing. What goes through your head? Yeah, a lot of it is just kind of the feel of how do they look, how much effort are they putting, how tired do they look. If they look fairly comfortable, then yeah, you can go on to the next step. But that patient who is leaning forward, who's tripoding, who you can see the retractions on, who's using chest musculature, who's diaphoretic, uh, all of these sort of things are part of the things that go into the idea that this patient has been trying and trying and trying to get by, and now it's finally gotten to the point where they are failing and you need to do something. You start BiPAP. BiPAP is frequently a great place to start. It may be worth a couple of minutes of talking about CPAP versus BiPAP. Ten years ago, people made a big deal out of this. It's less a big deal now. From an emergency medicine standpoint, CPAP is just extra pressure in the lungs. It's the equivalent to PEEP when you have someone intubated. So it's mostly to help oxygenation. The BiPAP is going to help your delta, is going to help how much air are you moving. So it's the equivalent of tidal volume on your uh, intubated patients. So that's to help carbon dioxide. Uh, so if you know they're a COPD or you're probably going to need the BiPAP. If you know they're just a CHFer, then you may be able to get away just of CPAP. But there's a lot of patients who are mixed pictures. So what do you advise? Well, some of it is a matter of, of how well they'll be able to work with the machine. That You need to tell the patient it's going to feel like a lot of air. And it's important to kind of talk them through those first couple of minutes that sometimes I'll start a patient on just five of CPAP just to get them a little bit used to it. Give them five minutes on that and then graduate up to the 10 over five or 12 over five of the bigger BiPAP settings. And, and I have noticed that when you don't need it and you put it on a patient that doesn't need it, they don't tolerate it very well. But you put it on a patient that needs it, and they won't let you take it off. So. It's amazing that, that 20 minutes later, 
later, that patient can be looking much better. But that's your first question is, do they need BiPAP? Um, the second question that I look at is, what's their blood pressure? Because if that pressure is 185, 190 uh, systolic, most times there's only one thing this is going to be. What's it going to be? CHF. And that's something we're said, because when you're doing a rapid response, you want to be able to walk in the room, you're asking for the BiPAP, you, you're, and you're, you want to know what's the most recent blood pressure. Get a manual, get, get the nurse to get you a blood pressure, because you're right, that's going to guide your decision, it's going to help you. It's not going to be right every single time, but I would say 90% of the time, if that pressure is 190 or, or higher on that significant dip breather, the answer is going to be CHF. Um, now, you're going to get your stat portable chest x-ray ASAP and do what you need to do to ask the clerk to call the tech to come shoot it now to confirm your diagnosis. Um, but if they're hypertensive, then you're looking at CHF. And then the question is, what is the treatment for CHF? Different people do different things. I like nitro. Jesse, do you like nitro? I like lots of nitro. Even better than I do. <laughs> nitro and lots of it. Yes. And, and, but, and I think that this is a time for, you know, if you do, if all things are checking off, you started the BiPAP, they're tolerating that, the blood pressure is elevated, you, you're thinking it's CHF. If you want more confirmatory tests and you don't want to wait for the chest x-ray, this is when I slap the ultrasound on. And I look for, see if I can, you know, confirm my reasoning. If I see B-lines and, and, and an IVC that's not collapsing, I feel very comfortable with, you know, starting high-dose nitro and, and giving Lasix if I can con consistently say that they're volume overloaded. And all the additional physical exam findings, uh, in addition, looking for JVD, which we forget to all the time, uh, seeing is there significant lower extremity edema, uh, and asking the patient, are your legs significantly more swollen or is there significantly more fluid in your belly than there typically is? You don't get a ton of questions, and you're mostly asking yes-no questions, unfortunately, to these very dysmic sort of patients. But that's a useful one to get to confirm that you're on the right path. So now what happens if we don't have that uh, systolic over one? Well, my next step, step is, is are they wheezing? Um, and keeping in mind, there's cardiac wheezes and there's lung wheezes that some of your CHFers will also sound uh, wheezy. And there's not a great way from an emergency medicine standpoint for most of us to really be able to separate that. Um, but if there is significant wheezing, then you're obviously throwing COPD much more likely into your differential and being more likely to early on giving them both steroids as well as, uh, as, well as intubate as, or nebulizers is more, more accurate. So to go on down your pathway, their blood pressure is not elevated. They don't have a lot of wheezing. Now what? Then, again, you're really looking at what is your differential. Well, what else could it be? Because you've got your big baddies that you have to think about. Am I of making sure that they're not having a STEMI? Uh, thinking about could this be a PE? And then you have to think about the other things that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily cardiac and lung problems that make a person breathe fast. That if you're not thinking about is this DKA or pancreatitis that has significant acidosis, you're not going to find those sort of things. And so just kind of keeping in the back of your mind that patient who's tachypnic but not actually laboring may not be necessarily just fitting easily into one of these first couple of boxes of while we're advocating a fairly simplistic approach here, you do need to be keeping the back of your mind that a certain percentage of these patients are going to fall out of this kind of fairly simple decision tree. But I think, and I think that goes to a, a, a real important point that we're making here. Your first 10 minutes are about making sure that the patient stays alive for you to finish and get to the end diagnosis. Yeah, then you can, then you can really go through that broad differential. In the short term, it's a matter of keeping them from tiring out right now and then getting on top of the things that you need to do right now 
um, such as getting that EKG in the chest x-ray in order to confirm that you're going the right direction. How do you gauge your success of your BiPAP? They say, when all else fails, ask the patient. In this situation, ask the patient, how are you doing? Are you feeling better? And a lot of times it's just a matter of looking at them. You can tell right through your walk to the door. This patient's, they're not doing so great. I need to intubate them. Or, uh, hey, they look a lot more comfortable. They're a lot less diaphoretic. They're a lot more relaxed. That blood pressure is better. Their oxygen is better. All those sort of things. And then take credit for it. Document in the chart. Timestamp that. That patient reevaluated, feels improved, less diaphoretic, that sort of stuff. Take advantage of your opportunity to prospectively document what's going on because nobody gets Monday morning quarterback more than we do. You have to just accept that and know that that's part of this job. But documenting what you're seeing as you're doing it, when that Monday morning quarterback steps up to the plate and decides to start taking issue with what you did, when they're reading your documentation, they're going to say, you know what, that's very reasonable. I would have done the same thing. It really takes a lot of the wind out of their sails when you're documenting prospectively that you're reevaluating the patient and seeing improvement or you're documenting how you're responding to a lack of improvement. And, and I think that's another point. This is not something you're doing you know, with a phone order or not something you're saying, start them on BiPAP and walking away. The, the, the patient that's in distress and, and is having shortness of breath and you're starting BiPAP on, you're going to want to know if your treatments are successful. And one of the ways you're doing that is you kind of stay in the room and make sure that it is. Even in the CHF patient, that you've got that patient with the high-dose nitro, that's a patient that could go either way, that, that if there's not going to, you need to be right there with ready to take over that airway if things need to, you know, if you need to move. Yeah, which brings us nicely to the one other point that we want to make for an introductory approach to difficulty breathing. Be very cautious with benzos and sedation agents in these cases that you will definitely see a lot of us finesse the BiPAP with small titrated doses of benzos, but those these are advanced techniques that you want to be very careful of. Do not fall into the trap on your intern first night on the floor or first month on the floor when that when that nurse calls you in the middle of the night and say, hey, little Mrs. Room 4072 uh, is feeling very anxious. Can I get her some Ativan or Seroquel or whatever it is? Go see that patient because hypoxia makes you anxious. Make sure that you are treating what you think you are treating because that is a classic intern mistake to treat anxiety with benzos when the answer was that they're hypoxic and you need to figure out what's going on with the patient. A lot of times when you're doing this, they are very difficult access. Some of these people that are in significant respiratory distress, definitely the flash pulmonary DNAs that we see a lot in the ER. We don't have an IV access very often, and I do transition with sublingual nitro and a BiPAP mask. It is complicated, but I have success where I, you know, I, I put them on the BiPAP, I get them on there, and then I have to take it off quickly, throw some sublingual nitro sprays on and put it back on. You can do that while while the nurses are trying to find access. Yeah, and realizing what you're doing with the nitro is, that's a very good point you raised because where do we start a nitro drip for unstable angina patients? It's usually 10 or 20 mics. How much nitro is in a sublingual, ni- sublingual nitro? It's 0.4 milligrams. It's 400 mics. So typically when you're giving sublingual nitro, you're giving sublingual nitro one of them every five minutes times three. If you, so if you divide 400 mics by every five minutes, that's the same as an 80 mic nitro drip. Depending on how it's absorbed, maybe it's down to 40, but somewhere between 40 to 80 mics of sublingual nitro. So you can deliver a lot more nitro ironically, with the sublingual than you can with the IV drip, especially when people are sometimes loath to start them at less than 
less than 20 mics. It's hard to get people to start a nitro drip at 40 mics or 80 mics. Uh, but if you want to do that, you just explain, hey, that's what we do with the sublinguals. A sublingual nitro every five minutes is the same as an 80 mic drip. So that's a very good point about how to maximize your nitro. This is one of those times when IV isn't necessarily stronger. And, and, and I think it's a great way to gauge how, how much you have to start with. If I have somebody who's got blood pressures in the 220s and I'm hitting with three sprays of nitro and I'm barely touching their blood pressure when it's repeated in three, four, five minutes, then I know I'm going to start with 150 to 200 mics per minute and it's not going to tank on me. Where there's some patients who come in with, you know, maybe they're hypertensive initially, but actually they turn up having a pneumonia and they're a septic patient. They actually respond so quickly to nitro that they don't need that high dose nitro that, that your CHF patient will. Yeah, not all of us may be as bold as, as Dr. Keller is, but, but I agree 100% that being heavy-handed with the nitro is frequently needed in these patients, and realizing a 10 or 20 mic nitro drip is really not very You're much. You're not doing anything. And the thing is, is when you are doing the high dose nitro, um, you know, from the, the you don't leave the room. You know, you're doing it like you're standing there with a, a sublingual nitro. It's not something that you walk away from. You're always there to watch that blood pressure because you don't need to drop it down to normal. These people usually aren't, you know, a CHF patient. You know, it's probably their their normal might be 160. You don't Correct. need to drop it that much. 170. Yeah. They'll be feeling a lot. Better. Yeah, turn, don't 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 titrate to a normal blood pressure. You know, just get it down lower than it is. They don't have a subarachnoid yet, <laughs> and and I think that that's key though. But I think you also, you know, this is just the things that you want to do to keep the patient alive. You know, but the, we we did the hypertensive patient that we think is pulmonary edema. What about the flip side? What about we we've got the patient? They're in significant distress. We 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 put the BiPAP on. They're they're still they're satting okay. They look a little bit more comfortable. But now we get the blood pressure and it's 80 over 40. Now I get I get scared. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, that's a, a lot harder thing to manage because if you're dealing with CHF and they're hypotensive, you can't really give them fluids. If you're dealing with a uh, pneumonia patient who's just simply hypoxic and septic, then you're going to have to give fluids. If this is a situation where the you do sometimes see where the positive airway pressure is enough to decrease the um, decrease the uh, uh, return of blood to the heart, uh, in which case Jesse's uh, ultrasound exam of vasculature is going to is going to help you a lot. But that's is a lot more kind of a nuanced uh, approach that you're going to have to start thinking through. That is a much more difficult situation. I think that's a great point. I know we always think about with the shortness of breath that, you know, we have to determine if it's COPD versus CHF. I think the patient that we're talking about, there's a very clear, definite line that we have to kind of figure out. Is this somebody who is going to respond to fluids or is this someone, if we give fluids, we're going to make them a lot worse. And I think that that is a great, you know, avenue where ultrasound can be very helpful. I mean, yes, your history, and, and making sure that you can get a good history and your physical exam findings. But if you can actually look at their heart and look at that ejection fraction, if they're significantly hypotensive from their heart and you're going to call it decompensated CHF, you're going to notice that that, that that heart is not pumping right. So if someone's hypotensive and in respiratory stress due to decompensated CHF, it's probably enough that you're going to pick up on, it, on a, an ultrasound of the heart. Um, and also, if on the flip side, you're probably going to pick up on the person who needs fluid. You're going to see a, a heart that looks pretty good um, that's just begging for fluids with an IBC that's flat, and you're going to feel a little bit more comfortable um, given that patient some fluids or at least giving a fluid challenge and see if that blood pressure comes up. Okay, so what are some of the high yield points that we just covered? Early use of BiPAP will definitely save you some intubations. 
The second question I ask myself is, are they hypertensive? That severely hypertensive patient most of the time is going to be in CHF. Um, if they're not in, if they're not significantly hypertensive, um, I'm listening for wheezing, saying, is this clearly COPD? Keeping in mind that CHF patients can wheeze as well. And then you're going down that whole rest of the list of, is this heart attack? Is this pneumonia? Is this PE? Is this some other big metabolic process? Uh, there's a lot of different sort of things, but uh, keeping that broad differential once you left this initial 10 minutes. The question of how much fluid, do I need an ultrasound evaluation at bedside to help me with fluids? Do I just need to look at how the patient does physical exam with fluids? And then just keeping in mind of being very judicious with with sedation in these dyspneic patients. Well, thanks for the review, Matt. And until next time, this is the Lakeland EM Podcast.